This episode is brought to you in part by Vocal Majority Bassoon and Oboe Camp. Vocal Majority Bassoon and Oboe Camp is excited to announce the 2017 summer camp season is open for enrollment. Vocal Majority is a camp where double read students of all levels, beginner through advanced, can come learn how to make reads and play chamber music. Their 20 nationwide locations include Chicago, Virginia, California, Ohio, Las Vegas, Dallas, Austin, Houston, San Antonio, and Abilene. Campers learn read making, participate in chamber music groups, attend master classes covering special topics and repertoire, and work with the best teachers in our field. From beginner to undergraduates, Vocal Majority has three camp divisions to suit students' needs. Vocal Majority is thrilled to feature Aaron Hannigan as their advanced camp oboe professor at the Dallas location this summer. Visit www.vocalmajority.com for details and dates. When I was in high school, I would have loved to have the opportunity to, to play for somebody like Aaron Hannigan. Um, it's so fun and developmentally beneficial to be around people who are passionate about the same things as you are, especially since as double read players, we tend to be pretty isolated in our high schools. We may be the only ones or maybe there's a, a couple other people who love and do the same things that we do. So this is a fantastic opportunity to meet other people who enjoy oboe and bassoon as much as you. This episode is brought to you in part by Double Read Girl. Double Read Girl offers handmade reeds and processed cane for oboe and English horn. All orders are custom made and a variety of options are available. Visit doubleread.girl.com for more information and let her know that you heard about Double Read Girl on Double Read Dish and get an additional discount on your order. Galee, you use Double Read Girl, don't you? I do. I love playing English horn, but I'm still saving up for my English horn shaper tip which I have, you know, I need and want, but have not had the funds to purchase yet. But in the meantime, I actually use Double Read Girl Shaped English Horn Cane, and it's worked for me every time. It's super reliable, affordable, and I, I make good English horn reads on them, if I do say so myself. Hi, I'm Galit Kaunitz. And I'm Jackie Wilson, and you're listening to Double Read Dish. A podcast for oboists, bassoonists, and the people who love them. Welcome to episode five. How's it going, Galit? Doing awesome. How are you, Jackie? I'm doing well. It's a new semester here at Southeast, and I've been really trying to prioritize maintaining my during break practice schedule. I was really happy with the amount of time and the quality of practice that I was doing over break. And so now that I'm adding things onto my plate, like classroom teaching and applied teaching, and you know, just getting back into a regular work schedule, I'm trying to really prioritize getting in a nice chunk of time at the beginning of the day. It helps that I'm a naturally early riser. So so yeah, I'm just trying to stay dedicated and focused as the semester goes on and more and more comes onto my plate. But yeah, what's new with you? Well, for, 
first, I just want to clarify what you mean by being an early riser, because you are already an early riser, aren't you? It's true. My day starts usually somewhere between 4.30 and 5 a.m. Uh. <laughs> Jackie, that's still nighttime. It's still nighttime. I can't do it. Well, yeah, sometimes I will get emails from my students, you know, these college students staying up till 2 or 3 a.m. cramming, and I'll get up and I'll read the email and go, oh, your day was ending around the time mine was beginning. How serendipitous. (laughs) How quaint. (laughs) Well, I'm glad to hear that your practicing is going well. Thank you. How have things been going for you? Oh, really good. Um, I just actually this weekend with the Meridian Symphony, I'm their second oboist and English hornist. And I got to play for the first time Mendelssohn 4, the Italian symphony. Awesome. Yeah, it was really awesome. I, ha- you know, I haven't played it before. And, you know, we always listen to it and study it. And it was really cool to actually play. And I'm really happy that I didn't have to play principal oboe for that for the first time of playing it. But my principal oboist, Patty Malone, sounded fabulous. And, you know, it was just a really fun symphony and it really gets you fired up. Awesome. Yeah. And to prepare for it, I, um, I was, I had my headphones in and I was playing my part to the recording and I was counting out loud and dancing. (laughs) It was really fun. (laughs) So we've been doing the podcast for a couple months now, and we've been getting some pretty regular feedback from our listeners reaching out to us and letting us know um, that they've not only found inspiration in the podcast, but in particular, uh, solidarity when we talk about those type of vulnerable places that musicians have to go in terms of imposter syndrome and performance anxiety and You know, I think that's a real testament to the level of honesty that our guest artists have been willing to go to. So one of the things that we wanted to talk about is this um, idea of shine theory, because that's something that's really important to you and I and something that we make use of in our everyday lives and in our friendship. Yeah, 100%. And I didn't know about shine theory until I met you, actually. You were the one who introduced me to it in the first place. Well, Shine Theory is something that I originally encountered on another podcast, um, and actually our listeners might enjoy it if you like the dynamic of this podcast and are interested in women's issues. Um, you might enjoy it very much. It's uh, Call Your Girlfriend, hosted by Ann Friedman and Aminatou So. And they really coined this term as the operating principle of their friendship and of their podcast. And so maybe we can let them tell our listeners about it a little bit in their own words. Awesome. The, you know, the core kind of belief behind Shine Theory is investing in a core group of people the same way that you invest in yourself. There is no room for pettiness or jealousy or not celebrating your friends because we're all part of the same team and we are all trying to kind of accomplish the same things and it's so much more fun if you do it with people that you love. Um, their successes are your successes. By the same token, like your successes are their successes. Having people who are invested in you and proud of you and make sure that you are celebrated when that happens. And what Shine Theory does is allows you to really ally yourself with your peers and learn from everybody in your kind of in your peer group. The model 
that a lot of us are raised with is this Highlander model of there can only be one. And if you're a woman, you know that like especially well, where there's only room for one of you at the table. If you are a person of color, it's even harder to get in. And yes, there can only there can only be one. And we really reject that notion. So basically, Shine Theory is just the rejection of this notion that there can only be one, and therefore the success of a peer comes at the expense of yourself. And so if we're rejecting that notion, then we should really celebrate and support our peers as we're together on this journey throughout our field. Yeah, and you know, it's really the anti-jealousy you know, you can't think of it as if this person succeeds, then I fail. Um, So a lot of times I think we fall into that trap where we look at, you know, the accomplishments that um, our peers have. And instead of being really excited for them and, you know, applauding them for the hard work that they've put in to get where they are, we think, why wasn't that me? Why couldn't that have been me? And, you know, it's so easy to get in that headspace, but it's also kind of easy to get out of that headspace. And I love the idea of, you know, when we help each other on our way to the top, so to speak, we all win. You know, when when I have an oboe colleague doing something cool or you have a bassoon colleague doing something cool, it's awesome to just be happy for them and um, amplify the great work that they're doing and, you know, creating a more positive space for everybody because there really is space for everybody because not everyone is going to do the exact same thing. Yeah, definitely. And someone listening may go, hey, but the fact of our field is that there often is only one. And it is true that many times the opportunities that arise are singular. If an orchestra is hiring a member, they're only hiring one person. If a university is doing a faculty search, they're only looking for one person. And that's totally true. But I think that what Shine Theory says is that though competition is inherent to what we do, it can be really easy to run away with that and to turn that from, okay, therefore I'm in competition with myself, which is to do better each and every day, to set goals, to create steps to bring me closer to those goals. And when I fall short of that goal or when someone else gets the opportunity, it does not need to result in animosity or jealousy or even at worst hatred toward that individual. That is between you and your goal and the space in between, you know? Mm-hmm. And the metaphor I really like to use is, if you're running a race and you're spending your time looking to the right or left of you at your competitors, that actually doesn't do anything except slow you down. It doesn't stop your competitor from running fast and it just distracts you from the goal or the um, situation at hand. And the thing I love about Shine Theory is that when you can be a good sport and look at that person who, you know, is having success and celebrate it, it also gives you the potential to be objective. And when we're objective about other people's success, when we can acknowledge exactly how it's happening, then we can learn from it. 
So if someone does something really great in our field and I decide to look at it in a way of admiration, then I can all of a sudden look at it and say, okay, how did they do that? It sounds so great. How did they do that? And I can learn from that and I can emulate all the great qualities about that person instead of trying to tear them down or be critical of them in some way, which really just robs me of the ability to learn from them. Mm -hmm. And then you're reigniting your own personal fire every time something great happens for somebody else. Exactly. Mm -hmm. And another thing they talk about in Shine Theory is the idea of kissing down as well as kissing up. So the notion of, you know, it's really easy to shine for these people that we worship, right? Totally. (laughs) You know, it's not super hard for me to shine for someone who... I have admired their career for decades and decades and, you know, have listened to their CDs countless times and that type of thing. But are you taking the time with those people who are your peers, who are at the exact same place as you and who likely have very similar goals to you? And are you supporting them? Are you finding people who are lower on the totem pole than you are career-wise or students? If you're a student now, are you looking to people who are younger than you? If you're a senior, are you looking to those freshmen and sophomores? And it really holds us accountable for supporting one another, not just those who are higher up than us. That's one thing they're very clear about in Shine Theory is this is not networking. This is creating a cohort of support and celebration. Yeah, totally. And I think it's really a powerful statement when, let's say you are a senior and you go to the, you know, freshman level band concert Mm -hmm. and you show up and you shine for your colleague in that band. And then, you know, it, it, it can be so powerful for that freshman who says, wow, this musician that I super admire came to my concert. They care about me. They support me. I'm so much more motivated to play well next time. Um, I'm more motivated to practice. I want to play for that person. You know, it really is a wonderful support statement when you can just show up for the other people in your community. Oh, absolutely. And I think we all have those compliments that we've gotten throughout the years that we will never forget. You know, there are things that people have said about me or my playing in a positive way that I continue to come back to years later because they were so important to me and they came to me at a time when I really needed to hear them. So I would just encourage other people, you know, if you think something positive about another person, make it a point to tell them, you know, last episode, I told the embarrassing moment of my wardrobe malfunction at IDRS. And, you know, after that, I was feeling really down about myself and I was really not happy about how that opportunity went. And I remember I was leaving the venue and another student attending the conference came up to me and said, hey, great job. And I just especially love your tone. It's it's just lovely. And I don't know if that was true that particular day. It doesn't matter if it was or not to you. It only matters that it was to that person. Exactly. And I have never forgotten that that person took the time to come up to me and say that because it was just the pat on the back that I needed at a hard time. You know, a time I was feeling really down on myself and needing to make lemonade out of lemons. And that person probably has no idea. They probably don't even remember saying that to me. And it's something that meant a lot. And I've never forgotten, you know, in the interview for today's episode, 
listeners will hear Benjamin Quelio talk about a compliment that he got that he has taken with him years down the line. So, yeah. Yeah, I even remember when I was an undergrad, I there was a doctoral student. We had a really small studio, so we were all playing together all the time, which was amazing. Um, and, you know, I remember getting ready for grad school auditions. I was incredibly afraid and intimidated and overwhelmed. And I remember asking him if I could play for him. And he was like, yeah, totally. And I still remember the feedback that he gave me because it was so valuable. And he didn't have to do that. He, you know, it was just purely out of the kindness of his heart. And he was so gentle about it and so sweet about it. And, you know, I still remember that moment as kind of a turning point for me in feeling a little bit more like, okay, I have concrete issues that I can address and I don't have to freak out so much. It was, it was really important. It was really important to have that kind of support from, you know, somebody that I really admired. Right. Like you said earlier, I think it really is easy to change our way of thinking if we give ourselves the opportunity because, you know, it's really easy, especially if you are a more competitive person, to feel threatened in an environment like a studio. But if you look at it objectively for a second, none of us want to be the only good person in our studio, you know? None of us want to say, oh, the studio is really weak and I'm the only exceptional part of it. You know, we want to say, I'm from a strong studio, and we want to be strong within our schools of music and within, you know, even the nation. And if you can look at it differently, and if you can support your peers and learn from them, everyone comes up a level. I once heard a ballet teacher say, you know, when you're standing at the bar, you'll put your foot up so high, but then when you look to the right or left of you, and that person's foot is just a little bit higher, Maybe you strain just that much more, which we can probably all relate to, but we also have to keep in mind that when that happens, the dance company gets stronger, you know, and the dance dancing on stage gets better because they're learning from each other and they're working as a team. So yeah, that's just basically shine theory in a nutshell. And it's been really helpful to me in overcoming mental stuff, but also in how I perceive other people as receiving me in the field. Yeah, I 100% agree. It's been life-changing, I think. A thousand percent, you know, and I think a lot of us have to mature into these ideas. I definitely struggled with being competitive and the way I thought of competition when I was younger, which makes it all the much more apparent how I've been liberated from those shackles in adopting this way of thinking. So my shout out to this episode is metorchestramusicians.org slash cartoons. Um, if you haven't heard about this before, it is um, basically, it's called Sunday Morning Cartoons that you can also purchase prints of, but they're super colorful, clever, smart um, cartoons depicting actual musicians in the uh, metropolitan uh, opera orchestra, and they're drawn by Emmanuel Ayrton. It says Emmanuel Ayrton is a French-born graphic artist and enthusiastic 
amateur musician. A graduate of Parsons School of Design, she's lived and worked in New York in the past and has an emotional bond with the city, its inhabitants, and institutions. And she even has a book out called Silence, Singers at Work, prefaced by Joyce DiDonato, which is totally awesome. (laughs) Um, Some of my favorite ones, there are so many, and they're so good. Uh, One of them is titled An Oboist's Day Off, and it pictures like this beautiful day outside, the sun is shining, and then all you see is the oboist sitting at the desk, furiously making reads. Cane flying everywhere. (laughs) That's hilarious. And uh, yeah, it's really clever and funny. There's one of of the contrabassoon player um, uh, with an oxygen tank labeled (laughs) thirdlung.com. So it's pretty good. It's pretty good. I I would highly recommend it if you want a little bit of a giggle. That sounds cute. I'm going to check that out. Yeah. What's your shout out, Jackie? My shout out this week is the book, The Talent Code by Daniel Coyle. This book is not music specific, though there's a lot about music in it. It takes as its thesis this question of, is talent innate or inherent or can talent be built and grown throughout certain practices? And he takes a look at how the brain learns things and how the brain replicates certain acts, be it sports or music or education. The thing I really loved about it is that it doesn't only look at the talent itself and how to build talent, but it also looks at how to teach or coach and impart these skills in our students. So I found it endlessly useful. You would hear the description and go, that sounds kind of dry, but actually his writing style is really engaging. It was a super fast read for me. And the biggest benefit is I found myself just so excited to practice as I was reading it. I was super inspired and like, let me at my bassoon. How quickly can I get this task I have to get done over with? Because I want to be practicing. I want to be making reads. I want to be using the tools that he's describing in this book and that type of thing. And I've spoken with several colleagues who've also read the book and they just echo, oh, I love that book. I read that book every year. So The Talent Code by Daniel Coyle, subtitle, Greatness Isn't Born, It's Grown. I highly recommend it. I can vouch for that too. Um, I have read it before, and if I'm not mistaken, he includes a lot of sports analogies, like, right? A lot of, like, uh, correlations to baseball Mm -hmm. and tennis and um, as well as music and I can't remember what else. But I remember when he talks about coaching and teaching, he actually talks a lot about, you know, timing and how quickly or slowly the information is disseminated and the kind of feedback to give, which I thought was really interesting. Oh, yeah. There have already been, even in just this first week back, in teaching lessons, I've said to myself, oh, try not to talk excessively. Are you using that advice that you acquired? Because as he was writing things and I was reading it, I was thinking to myself of, oh, I do that sometimes, or (laughs) guilty. So I've been applying a lot that I learned to this book. That's awesome. Yeah, highly recommended.
This podcast is brought to you in part by Sing and Dog Double Read Supplies. Sing and Dog Double Reads is an online double read shop and one of the largest suppliers of high quality and affordable professional and student reads for oboe and bassoon in the USA. Please visit www.singandog.com to see all of their products. That's S-I-N-G-I-N-D-O-G.com. Janet Ingle loves the oboe. She has built her reputation on providing high-quality handmade reeds, education, and a sympathetic ear to oboists across the country. When you order from Janet Ingle Reeds, you get prompt communication, reeds or cane handcrafted to your specifications, and cheerful, friendly customer service. All orders are mailed within one week, often much faster. Monthly read subscriptions are available, as well as single orders, and on the site you can also find read cases, tools, and supplies, Janet's own sheet music arrangements, and her new CD, Music That Should Have Been Written for the Oboe. I've heard her CD, and holy low notes, it sounds awesome. So we have deemed February to be Mentor Month, which is really exciting. We are interviewing both of our doctoral teachers. Um, The first is on today's episode is Benjamin Coelho from the University of Iowa, who is your teacher. And the second half of the month is going to be Eric Olson from Florida State University, who was my teacher. I'm so glad we're calling this Mentor Month because that's the word that I always use to describe him as, you know, when I introduce him to someone new in my life or something like that, or when I'm referring to him in conversations, you know, I'm not his student anymore. I'm not in school anymore. So he's not at present my teacher, but it's almost like that parent relationship, you know, where you grow up and you move out of the house and you're not being parented anymore, but you still have to make those phone calls home and get advice and you still rely on your parents. And even though that relationship changes, you still really look up to your parents as important people to help guide your life. And musically, that parallel with me and Benjamin, you know, is the exact same. I still have to call him for major decisions or times when I need advice. And I look to him and ask him to help guide me through it. So I can't overstate the importance of him in my life and in my development. And he's a great teacher and I can't wait for our audience to get to know him. And when we were conducting the interview, I remember thinking, man, I really should be writing all this down. It felt like I was in a masterclass. He's awesome. And I know our listeners will enjoy this interview as much as you and I did. Without further ado, here's Benjamin Quilio. Benjamin, welcome to Double Read Dish. You come from a very musical family. Can you tell us about how you got started in music and your training in Brazil? Oh, first of all, thank you very much for having me in your show. I've been listening to your podcasts, and it's really wonderful, and I really like the way the two of you are so engaging, and your questions and your guests have been so phenomenal. I feel so honored that I was asked to do this as well. Thank you. Thank you. Of course. Well, as you said, I'm, I'm originally from Brazil, and I do come from a very musical family. Uh, and my father was the director of a music conservatory in our town. So since we were like six, seven years old, we had started in music. And I started uh, recorder 
when I was eight years old, and then I moved up to the bassoon. It was time to choose an orchestra or band instrument in my family, and I chose the bassoon. I, at first, I wanted to play the guitar, but my two older brothers and my father said, no, guitar is for people that are loners, they're always playing by themselves, you should choose another <laughs> instrument. Then I, I saw and talked to my two of my cousins that were playing the bassoon at that time. So I started on the bassoon, and I really liked it right away. I was 10 years old, and I registered for the bassoon lessons. Then I went for my first lesson, and the professor at the time was this gentleman from orchestra in the city of Sao Paulo, but he was from, back then, we called the Czechoslovakia. He, he was from the Czech Republic, and he sent me out, say, you can't play the bassoon, you're too small, you're too young, you have to be 14 years old. And that made me very upset, so I went home, and I told my dad. Then my dad said, don't worry, go back next week. <laughs> and, and the professor didn't know that I was the, one of the sons of the director of the conservatory. <laughs> <laughs> so I went back, but he still was very strict. He only allowed me to sit in other students' lessons and did not let me play the bassoon because it was too small. I, I Literally, I was shorter than the bassoon then. I'm not much taller now, but back then I was shorter. <laughs> and, but at least my cousins would let me you know, play on their instruments, and, and I had a lot of fun. And then after a few years... I continue playing the bassoon, and both of my cousins stopped playing. Um, as you mentioned, you're originally from Brazil, but you um, got your college education, undergrad and beyond, here in the United States. And I'm curious, what motivated you to move across the world to pursue your music education? And what is that experience like? I would guess it's a big adventure, maybe scary. Could you talk to us about that a little bit? As I said, my father was the director of the conservatory in Brazil, and at that time, the conservatory was considered like a secondary level, like up to high school level. And then in Brazil at the time, they didn't have universities with performance degrees. So uh, my father was a visionary that he wanted the students from the conservatory to go abroad and develop their musical skills and then come back to Brazil and apply what they have learned and in, in meanwhile trying to develop the conservatory into a, a higher education like university level. Uh, and so several of, of my colleagues at that time went to study in Europe and in the United States. So when it was my time to graduate from high school Two of my brothers, Carlos and Tadeu, Carlos the oboist and Tadeu the flute player, they were already here in this country going to school. They were going to SUNY Purchase or Purchase Conservatory in New York. So uh, they just said, you got to come here. So I went and it was a little bit traumatic for me at first because I was only 17 years old. I was not planning to, to go to the States for at least another six months where I was going to learn English before going. So, but I had to go. So I finished school in December and in January I was in New York and I didn't speak one word in English. <laughs> uh, wow. 
And so, I, but they were there with me, so they helped me a lot. And I started my studies there, and I studied there with uh, the bassoonists from the New York Wooden Quintet at the time, and principal bassoonists from New York City Ballet, Donald McCourt. So it was very hard to come as a young boy, first time out of the house. I have never traveled uh, by myself, but uh, Lockley was there with my brothers, and I started studying. And I was working really hard because I couldn't speak to it, Noah. <laughs> so I, I, I only practiced and several of my friends would say, oh, Benjamin was such a nice guy until he learned English. <laughs> so, so then after my undergraduate, I went and got my master's at Manhattan School of Music in New York with uh, Arthur Weisberg. And then after that, I moved back to Brazil, and then I worked in a couple different orchestras, and then started teaching at the Federal University of Minas Gerais in, in Belo Horizonte, uh, in the center of Brazil. And I was there for seven years before coming back to this country, where by that time I was married to, to the love of my life, that we had met in, in a SUNY purchase, and she's an American. So after we got married, we decided that we we're going to come back to this country. So we came back, and then I started my doctor at Indiana University, where I was there for uh, three years studying with Kim Walker. And then I got the job here at the University of Iowa. And uh, fortunately or unfortunately, I never got my doctrine finished. And here I am, 19 years later, teaching at the University of Iowa. I have heard magical stories about your wife's matzo ball soup, by the way. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> it, they are really very good, even though she makes from the box. But the way she makes them is very, very nice. And I, uh, I have heard in your podcast earlier on, I think it was the, on the second one, you talk about Jack, you talk about the matzo ball soup. So I, I used to take my students to like pizza party, to a restaurant. And I decided to stop that because they're all waiting for me to leave the restaurant so they can start drinking beer. <laughs> <laughs> so that's why I had the idea to do a soup party in my house. And that should prove to be a really great success. And we have a lot of fun. We just had one here this past December. And we play some games and, and we eat a lot of good food. You are known as a really excellent, uh, beautiful player and a wonderful bassoon pedagogue. And I wonder if you yeah. could talk a little bit about maybe uh, repertoire or resources that you like to use as teaching tools um, and uh, maybe a little bit about your teaching style. You know, I, I use the materials that almost everybody uses, you know, the mute etudes, Weisenborn etudes, and there are several different other really great books that we work with. But one thing that I really work very hard is to understand, to try to understand where the student is at and where, the, where is the emotional state of the student? What's the goal of the student? What, where does he or she wants to go? with music making, bassoon playing. So it's that's the part that I really passionate about is to discover 
those issues with the students, where they are, how they're, what they want to do, and help them develop that part. At the University of Iowa, we have, uh, like any other university, state university, we have several different kinds of students here. We have the ones that do want to become professionals. We have the, from music minor all the way to the DMA. So every student has a different goal and has a different idea where he or she wants to do with music and bassoon. So respecting that and learning and maybe guiding them through what they want to do. And, some, and often they, they might even change their minds, which is fine. You know, we're flexible enough that we have the space for uh, people to change their minds. Piggybacking on that, um, in teaching undergraduates versus graduate students, do you find there is a different approach or that they have um, different common problems or concerns, or do you find they're very similar? I think in many ways it's very similar. Uh, it's just that the uh, grad students, older person, knows more and in knows that what he or she needs to do to, to, you know, to succeed in the profession. Uh, an undergraduate might just want to play bassoon during the four years, an undergrad, and then go to like uh, medical school or law school or, or some other professions. And if the grad students are for sure wanting to be here to develop and becoming professionals. So the intensity, uh, in the teaching and on the learning, it's much more apparent, which brings also more pressure into the students. Uh, you mentioned that you have students in various stages in their development and um, with various goals in music making, but we all deal with performance anxiety. And do you have any advice or techniques that uh, you typically give to students who are dealing with this type of fear? You know, it's that performance anxiety is a real thing that we all have it. You know, you can ask the most seasoned professional, you know, people they are playing, great soloists. They're always, you can ask them, they'll tell you that, yeah, I do feel nervous before I perform. Uh, and I think that is part of your body telling you that you're about to go do something important. So instead of trying to suppress that and try to forget about it, try to not say, I'm not going to be nervous, I'm going to relax. I think that's the wrong approach. I think first you need to embrace and, and accept that your body is giving you the cue that you're gonna about to do something important. So through breathing exercises, and one thing that I talk to my students a lot, that breathing is not just inhaling. Breathing is, is a cycle, is inhaling and exhaling. And in the case of the wind instrument, when you exhale is when there's music being produced. And even when I'm nervous, like when I'm in an airplane, I get a lot of turbulence, I get nervous. I purposely start my musical breaths and I breathe out, very controlled breathing out. And that helps me feel stable. Doesn't necessarily take my fear away, but gives me more stability and more control. So I always tell the students, 
to to embrace that. I, uh, I I even do that before going on stage. I close my eyes. I get in touch with my heartbeat, and then I thank my body. Thank you for getting me ready for what I'm about to do now. And then I walk on stage, and as I was walking in, I'm breathing out. And feeling this is me coming to give what I have prepared to you, my listeners. That's wonderful. Thank you. I think that helps a lot when you you get in touch with your inner self and accept that there is something important and that you acknowledge that. I think it's great also to know that you're nervous because you care and it's good to care. Exactly, exactly. It's very, very important. To and but you know, with all that said, you need to prepare. You can't expect to walk on stage and not have done your scales and long tones and done the you know go through the through the process of preparing. Preparation helps a lot. But then there's other people that are excessive in that, and then there's I think meditation and other techniques maybe um, of help. Along this line of preparation, one of my favorite memories with you was in my first position when I um, invited you up to do a recital, and I was backstage with you, ready to introduce you, and you got out your reed case, and you played eeny, meeny, miny, mo to decide which reed you were going to play the recital on. No. And yes, it's true, and it occurred to me, he knows that any read in his read case can play the recital that he was about to play. And it was not like, you know, hot cross buns for bassoon and piano. It was a, a lot uh-huh. of, you know, a really sophisticated repertoire. And so I wondered if you could describe to our listeners your approach to read making and then also your approach to teaching these standards and habits to your students and specifically your read class and that type of thing. You know, I have to have a disclaimer here that my shock sound bassoon is an oboist. I love making reads. I, <laughs> if I could, I would make reads all day long. Uh, I, it's just I'm a person that I'm, I consider myself to be a handyman. And I went even to what if I was weren't to be a musician, I wanted to be a mechanical engineer. Mm. So I, when I was in high school, we had a very excellent high school in my town that we call uh, was a, is a mechanical high school. So I went to that school because I want to make things with my hands. And so when I graduated, I was I was a certified lathe operator. You know, I wow. could have gone into the you know industry and start making money operating machinery. Um, so I, I love making reads, so I'm constantly making reads and, but one story that stuck to me that, that I tell everybody is I once was talking to a clarinet player that often played with the New York Philharmonic and I asked him, you know, when you guys, you just came back from China, so how do you do with reads in China? There is no altitude, all different kind of adversities for the reads. He just said, you just stay in the hotel and you work on your reads. And that came from a clarinet player. You have to put in the time. So th- there's no secret. 
If you are a really good read maker, maybe you need to make one read and that works. If you're not a good read maker, you have to make as many as necessary mm. to have a good read. It's just there's no other way to do it. So if you have to make a hundred reads to have one good read, that's what you need to do. So, uh, and, but one thing that I also tell my students is that you have to rotate your reads. You cannot have that favorite read or say one thing that really drives me crazy for the students. They come and play and I say, is this your best read? And they say, no, I'm saving that for the recital. <laughs> I, I usually tell them, you better get your best read right now. If you have to, when you're performing, be a lesson or be a band rehearsal, you got to have your best read. You can't save read for later. Uh, at least that's my philosophy. I, I think if you're saving a read, that means you don't have a, two good reads. Hmm. And if you don't have two mm -hmm. good reads, you, your anxiety is going to be much higher. Mm -hmm. Because I re also remember when I was <laughs> going from my undergrad to audition, and that was before my junior audition, I was in the practice room, and somebody came in walking very fast in the practice room, and my bassoon, I was next to the door, and the reed was destroyed by the door. That was the evening mm. before my audition. Mm. And then the, the, my friend, he was so, so sorry, so upset, he couldn't believe. Luckily, I had another, another read. So earlier on in my life, I knew that having one read was not enough. So I think making reads is very, very important. And I, my read-making process is I start from the tubes, and I do all of the the new things that comes into the market, like uh, the hardness tester or the density tester. And very recently, I had a very big change on my approach in selecting cane uh, from, from the tube, where before I was wanting to get the pieces to be all at a specific number, a specific hardness in a specific... Um, uh, density, and and then I realized it's the wrong approach. I start since I have uh, making reads from the tubes. I start accepting that some canes are more dense than others, some are harder than others, and and I decided to change my gouging machine. So when I have a cane that tests a very high density. So the cane is too dense that I would normally reject. I'm gouging those pieces thicker than, than that I, my normal thickness is because then when I profile, I want to profile deeper into the lower layers of cane, which is our softer cane. And I must say that, that my quantity of uh, workable reeds and canes improved tremendously. And the same thing I do with the, the hardness tester, because you test the hardness after the, the, the reed is gouged. And so I set up my profiler that has more leeway. If the cane is harder, it's, it's going to be a little bit thinner. If the cane is 
softer, it's going to be a little bit thicker. And I must say that my reads since this past summer have improved a lot. I'm very, very excited. My family, my daughter, she can't believe that how many hours I've been playing the bassoon every day. She's, <laughs> because she wasn't accustomed of me playing so much. <laughs> Just that these new reads that I'm making are making me wanting to play more and more and more. So I'm very excited. So I, I, so I'm very methodical about read making, but I also make a lot of reads. Yeah, definitely. I would also love um, if you could talk about your read class and um, the, what the students have to do in read class and their midterms and their finals. I think as someone who experienced that, I think our listeners would be really interested in those standards that you hold your students to. Uh, here at the University of Iowa, we're very, very fortunate that we have money to buy materials that are going to be used by students. Uh, there is over 30,000 students at the whole university. And several years ago, uh, the director of the Performing Arts Division was able to get through the border regions that every student enrolled at the university would have to pay a fine arts fee. And that fee is, has to revert back to, to the students. And so the music school and the other arts were able to, to get now, have a budget, a yearly budget for equipment, for instruments and equipment. So at the University of Iowa, we have an amazing read room and we have anywhere between fifteen, twenty thousand dollars worth in read equipments just for the bassoons. Wow! So, so, uh, and I teach the two classes a week, a read class. I have, I go by by the days of the week. So Wednesdays are for the more advanced students and grad students, and Fridays are for the younger undergraduate students that are more uh, beginners in read making. And they all have, by midterm, have to have at least 12 reads to, to perform. And then I, uh, I do a test. They come to my office and they play, I say, play high, play low, play staccato, play soft, play loud. Let's check the intonation for this, intonation for that, and see if, how the reads are responding and attacks and all that good stuff I was looking for in the read. And, and no, they, the students don't like that very much because <laughs> it, uh, it's, not, it's hard for them to have 12 reads that come and play those things. And, you know, most of their reads are not sounding great, you know, but that's how you start to get better and better results by just you know, do the due diligence in making reads. You know, we have different books, different techniques. As Jackie knows, I always say there are as many different ways to make a read as there is stars in the sky. And you, you think, you know, you use a shaper tip. You know, you, let's say you use a Fox number two straight shaper. If you make the tube at 28 millimeters or the tube at 30 millimeters, that's a completely different shaper already. So using one type of shaper doesn't mean you're going to make a read like the other person is making because one millimeter can make a big difference. So, and we start, you know, the reads from the tubes. So you, by touching the material, you learn about the material. 
and also we have there at the University of Iowa all the equipment to test the cane. So they have to do a midterm and the finals. And I never give a reads to my students. Only the very first semester freshmen, I might give them a read if they don't have a read. But by midterm or by, end, by Thanksgiving time, they're all performing on their own reads. And sometimes that they feel they're worse than the reads they buy from their teacher before coming to college, which is fine. It's part of the process. We have patience and we have the time. Do you have any tips for teaching or learning physical, musical concepts like embouchure and vibrato? For me, especially vibrato tends to be one of the more uh, tricky subjects to teach. And I'm really curious to hear what your thoughts are on it. Uh, my thoughts are the same as yours. Vibrato is <laughs> really hard to teach. I, my approach in playing the bassoon always has been the vocal approach. So... In my case, my vibrato at first started by just imitating people, hearing and trying to do things. And, and that's when I was a young student. And then I developed a sort of a vibrato. And then once I became older, I used to ask like uh, vocal coaches and vocalists, singers, what they do. I said, how do you teach? And several of them told me, they just simply say, we don't teach vibrato, it just comes. I guess you use the Iowa approach, if you build, they'll come. <laughs> uh, so, it's really hard to teach, but there's, you know, specific exercises that you can get the ball rolling, like, the, you know, simply... So what is the vibrato? The vibrato, I think, it does have dynamic difference and pitch variations. If you look at string players, if you think about a string, when they're vibrating, usually they're going, from the note, they're going a little flatter and then sharper. But mostly to the flatter. The woodwind instruments, when we do vibrato, our pitch tends to rise more than the string pitch does. So I always refer to the string playing kind of vibrato so because it's, you can see what's going on. So by, I just go by blowing, ah, 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 have that kind of variation. You can put your hands on your belly and then push against it and, and sing a note. And then you feel the air hitting the, the roof of your mouth. So they will develop, uh, try to develop a, a sensor what the air is doing and how is that getting to, through, through your throat and through your, your reeds. So the, those exercises are very, very valid. They were like uh, blowing a candle, you know, very fast. And then you see the muscles engaging in doing that movement and you have that variation in airspeed. And, and from there you start developing the, the, the a sensor thing, and then you can turn it on and off. Hopefully. <laughs> <laughs> so vibrato, it is a difficult thing to teach, I find. But if you don't start with those uh, uh, initial exercises of just blowing, you know, one accent per note, in, uh, like you put the metronome at 60, 
and then you go ah ah ah, and and the one thing that I always try to address is to be very careful when you're doing the posts that your embouchure is not changing so much because then it becomes about almost like a saxophone kind of vibrato where it's a leap vibrato which mm -hmm. works very well for a saxophone but does generally does not work very well for the bassoon although there are bassoonists fantastic bassoonists that do do the leap vibrato one of my favorite questions that we ask our guests is for you to list some of your favorite pieces to play, be it from the solo repertoire, the chamber repertoire, or the orchestral repertoire. Well, I, I heard some of your other guests, and I agree with them. There's so many pieces. So music is so amazing. And as a, as a bassoonist, you know, a lot of the music is not written for the bassoon, you know. Uh, when I listen to Bach, it's just, it transports me to a different dimension that's so amazing. Or any Mozart piano, piano concerti, or the operas, you know, the measure of figure of the opera is, it doesn't get any better than that. But, uh, but for us bassoonists, I, I really love playing the Mozart bassoon concerto. I also really like the Dutier Sarabande Cortege. Chamber music, the Mozart Piano Quintet is one of my favorites. Um, Beethoven's Third Symphony. Then there's all mm -hmm. the Brahms. And then Stravinsky. Every piece that he wrote has amazing bassoon parts. You know, uh, so it's Shostakovich. It's, so I don't really have a very favorite pieces. I have many pieces that I really love. I would like to ask one of my favorite questions now is um, what advice would you give to people to have a career like yours? You know, the <laughs> uh, people say, you know, practice, practice, practice. And there's no way around that. But I think the first thing is really imperative that you have a passion for music and for the bassoon is if you don't have the passion, don't, don't even try to, to have a profession in music or anything. You can, if you have a passion for what you do, nothing is work, it's always a pleasure. So every time I teach, every time I play my bassoon, I'm very passionate about it. You can ask my, <clears throat> my students about that, how crazy I get sometimes and you know, but you, and then you have to work really, really hard. And you need to develop several different uh, sets of skills. You cannot just play the bassoon. What I always, I always tell my students, I will consider myself a successful teacher if I'm able to teach you one thing. And that one thing is to be curious. Because when you're curious, you ask a lot of questions. And when you ask a lot of questions, you start learning things that you need to do to succeed. One other thing, you need to really connect with other musicians. It's not, this is not an individual art. Even if you're a pianist playing solos just by yourself, 
but when you're in a concert hall, you are communicating with other, with your listeners, with human beings. So if you don't have that, then you're not fully being a, a, a musician. And as I said earlier, you know, the, the version, my version of practice, 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 I like to say practice, listen, practice, listen, practice, listen. Don't just practice for the sake of repetitive things. I know we learn a lot by repetition. That's how we learn a lot of things. But we, when you want so much to do something, you cannot forget to connect with your emotional state because if you just do all of this mechanically, you're not going to succeed. You need to be using both sides of your brains when you're doing this, when you practice, practice, practice. Uh, it needs to be practiced with thoughts, with musical, musicality and musical ideas, the thoughts of music. What does it mean when playing the same arpeggio a million times so I get it right. Because if you practice just mechanically and then you add the, the interpretation later, that's a, you're using different parts of the brain to do the interpretation. So then there's not enough bleeding from one side to the other side of the brain. So I try to, to do all the mechanical and musical practice simultaneously. So it's one thing instead of two separate things. Yeah, I think it's such a good point. Um, previously in an episode, Galit and I were having a conversation about how it really is important to experiment and be creative and take those chances. And I think it's what you just said affirmed that so much more for me that you're not going to get that multidimensional aspect to your playing if you're compartmentalizing your music making for the sake of efficiency right. or clocking hours. Exactly. And I'll ask, just to go back to your question, <laughs> is that I go back to what I said a little earlier about developing different set of skills. I think you want today needs to, to, to be more, very broad-minded and, 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 and look at different paths in how you can make this a profession. You know, the idea, I, I'm, a, you know, everybody talks about how the orchestral world is changing and the orchestras are closing, big, amazing orchestras are having financial trouble. This is all true, but I, I, I'm, I'm a believer that orchestra, that high, that type of art form is never going to go away. I think the difficulties we're having right now is temporary. I believe that people will want to go to a concert hall. I think we're used to this, all this technology that you can have everything your fingertip in a little like four by two phone. You can have the whole world there. But people are really giving up a lot of the quality and a lot of the emotions that come with a live performance. You know, when you're listening to things on YouTube, there's no way you're receiving that the same way as a live music because the, the files are compressed. You're, you're distracted. So I think we as human beings are going to go back wanting to sit in a concert hall and listen to a, to a, a Mahler symphony for 80 minutes. I think we want 
I think we are we want to have that, and I think I think that will come back. I don't know if it's going to be now, later, in a decade, in twenty years. I don't know, but I I think the you will go back to that. I think we need that. I think as human beings, we're going to need to go back to that that kind of appreciation for things. You know, just looking at the Mona Lisa on your computer, even in 3D, is not the same as standing in front of it in the Louvre. It's, it's a, so I, I'm, I believe that things are going to get better for orchestras. Of course, we have to be smart about how you go about. I think orchestras make a mistake when they play a lot of pops concert because that brings revenue. But I really doubt is developing audience. They're coming to see their film music, that you know that Disney show, you know, and you make a lot of your money for the rest of the season with that. But you're not developing audience, so it's a it's a momentary solution. But uh, so I, more ideas needs to come, so we start developing audience. Hmm. Can you tell us a favorite memory you have of a past performance that you've given? Well, there's many performances that are really enjoyed, but I think what comes up to the top, there's there's two performances that I will tell you about. One of my, my first performance at Carnegie Hall, when I was sophomore in college, I auditioned for what back then was called the Alexander Schneider Music Festival that performed concerts at Carnegie Hall and the Lincoln Center in Washington, D.C. Now that program is called, I believe, the New York String Orchestra Seminar. And, and that was one of the best musical memories that I have in my life with young players from all over the country, and the other bassoonist in that year with me was Rick Renty, which mm -hmm. plays uh, bassoon of the Boston Symphony Orchestra. And he had just won the Philadelphia Orchestra job when he was still a student at Curlis. So he was the principal bassoon at this festival, and I played second to him. And I had such a great time with him and at the festival. The other performance that stayed with me forever it wasn't a particularly great performance, the way I played, but the way my music reached an audience member. Uh, I played the Moser Bassoon Concerto with a Brazilian Air Force band. They had some, they invited me to play with them when they had all the Air Force families coming together for, I don't remember exactly why they were all there, but the families and the military were there. And they, after the performance, a lady from the audience came to me and said, I, know, I don't know anything about this instrument, this bassoon, but the way you played, I know kind of paraphrasing what she said here, uh, the way you played me, made me um, feel that your music was like music therapy. Your music made me feel special and relieved from my emotional pains. And I never forgot that because that was a very simple woman that had no training in music whatsoever, but I felt that I was able to connect with her through my bassoon. 
And that was, I think, the best compliment I ever had in my life uh, as a somebody that came to me after a concert I performed. That's so special. It um, was very special. I can't, uh, I, I even remember her face, and that was at least 26 or 27 years ago when I performed that. And that's the goal, you know, that's what we all try to do when we perform is mm-hmm. to, to help people feel things. Sure. <laughs> Benjamin, where can our listeners find you on the internet? Well, I, I guess my website. <laughs> <laughs> they can find me on my website, which is Benjamin Coelho, C-O-E-L-H-O. There's a people make a mistake in the spelling there, .com. So benjaminquelio.com. And they, I know it's, I need to go and update my website so it's not totally updated, but it has information about my, my recordings. You know, I have several recordings. That's one thing that also the University of Iowa being able to provide all the faculty with special recording grants. So I have six or seven CDs that I record with those grants. And uh, my, the latest one is coming out sometime this spring, which is trios for oboe, basso, and piano that I record with Andrew Parker and Alan Huckleberry. So we, the, I have recorded for you know, Crystal Records, um, Albany Records. So I, I'm on iTunes and I think I am even Spotify, somebody told me so. You can find me in those places. <laughs> um, the last question is undoubtedly the most important. Um, past, present, and future, who is your favorite student that you've ever taught? <laughs> <laughs> it's you, Jackie. Um, cor- that's the correct answer, yes. <laughs> Uh, Benjamin, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. It has um, been so wonderful to hear your thoughts, and I can't wait um, for all of our listeners to get to hear what I already knew, which is how wonderful and knowledgeable you are about the bassoon and how inspiring it is to hear your words. So thank you so much. Thank you all, both of you. Well, that concludes episode five of Double Read Dish. Tune in in two weeks on February 15th for an interview with my mentor, Dr. Eric Olson from Florida State. In the meantime, you can find us on the internet at Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, SoundCloud, and iTunes. You can also go to our website, www.doublereaddish.com, or you can send us an email at doublereaddish at gmail.com. We always love hearing from you guys. Thank you for listening and thank you to our sponsors.